I just, I feel like we have done such a disservice to, and there's been such a demonic, and I'll just say it, it's a demonic lie from hell that there is a desirable body type over any other body type. It's so demonic, and it was spawned in hell, and it has been multiplied across media and magazines, and this whole thing has been fed. Now, unfortunately, this is why I feel the, always the need to apologize, is pornography has fed that, that lie. And, and now, all of a sudden, you know, you, have, you can't go through a grocery checkout line with being told what the perfect body is. I'm telling you, that checkout line, those are demonic lies. God doesn't create anything that's not beautiful. To, to exalt one body type over another is to discredit the creator's creativity. As if he went down and created some in their mother's womb and was like beautiful, and the other one was like, I'm sorry, you're not going to make the cut. It's to insult the creator's creativity to not see the beauty in every body type, every skin color, every hair color, every type of eye, every type of body. Athletic, not athletic, doesn't matter. Not one of them did he go awesome, not as awesome. Really great, not so great. Every single human body he created, he said, it is good. But society has lied to us and said, no, this is good, and drawn a picture of it. And then 99% of women feel disqualified from that. And then walk around going, I guess I'm just not the right this, the enough of this. I don't have enough of that. And man, this, I, I just, I hate it. The war on self-hatred is a war worth fighting and overcoming, you know? And, and guys can struggle with it as well, too, but it's often I find it's the ladies, you know, more common. Like, guys are sometimes they're opposite. Like, a dude, you know, maybe li- literally, like, hasn't worked out in, you know, you know, years and, like, maybe could use a little bit of a workout, right? And might just eat fast food every, you know, a- every meal. And yet a guy will look in the mirror and he'll, like, admire his elbow, you know? Guys are just, like, <laughs> we're just wired that way, right? It's just, like, man, you know, this thing's been a little like, inactive recently, but how about my elbow? Look at the deaf definition of that thing and a guy will get lost in the mirror like checking out the definition of his elbow going like I still got it I still got it right it's so funny it's just the way we're made but then a a beautiful and in my mind all women are beautiful but a beautiful lady will look in the mirror and find the one thing that she thinks doesn't measure up to this ridiculous standard that's been painted for us and I hate it oh that women would look in the mirror and go God did good Like, oh, that a lady can look in the mirror, wake up in the morning and go, my creator is amazing. And my creator created me awesomely. And I don't need to be anything that I'm not, you know. And of course we take care of ourselves and there's health and there's, you know, all of that kind of stuff that we're stewarding what he's given us. But to to not admire the work of his creation is to not admire the creator at the end of the day. And so I, that, I'm passionate about that topic and passionate that ladies would have a revelation of how beautiful that they really are in the midst of all the lies that have been around us. And then I would say stewarding that or how does a girl honor that or honor, you know, and not, not just ladies, but, you know, men as well. I love this. My daughter, you guys know Lindy um, Kofer. She's the, one of the main worship leaders for Circuit Riders is Every Nation. Did she come this course? She comes a lot. She's one of our very close friends. I had the privilege of helping her doing her and Chase's wedding, and we've known her for 10 years. Well, she is my daughter's hero. 
like Hadassah and Rayma, they're like literally they're like best friends. And Hadassah and Rayma are some of Lindy's best friends. And Lindy's like, I don't know, she must be 25, 26, but she legitimately is like friends with my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old. And they're like her. Hadassah's already writing music. She's already writing songs. She sat down at the piano the other day and wrote this whole song all by herself. She didn't know how to play piano. But she wrote it on piano, and the lyrics were of fire in us, God is with us. Fire in us, God is with us. And she writes this song. And I, I, I can take no credit. I'm just like, Lindy, thank you. <laughs> well, I was, I was driving in the van. This is going somewhere the other day. And Hadassah was in there. And I said something because I'm, I'm at the door of their heart. I just said, Hadassah, I just want you to know how beautiful you are today. That's all I said. I'm just reinforcing truth. And I just said, you look beautiful, Hadassah. And she goes, uh, she, she goes, yep. She goes, modest is hottest. And I was like... <laughs> She was probably, it was probably a year ago. It was probably nine. And I'm like, what? I go, where did you hear that? She goes, Lindy taught me that. And I'm just like, thank you, Lindy. Like, there's a, and, and so Lindy's reinforcing in my daughter's mind that her beauty is inward, her beauty is outward, but that there's actually a beauty to her modesty. There's a beauty to how she walks out her beauty. There's a beauty to how she covers her beauty. There's a beauty in her modesty. There's a godliness in her modesty. And Lindy has modeled that, but she's mentoring my daughters in a way that Holly and I will do our best, but it's something else when someone else says it. So I would say to the ladies that part of valuing valuing yourself is knowing that you never need to dress in a way to draw attention to yourself because you don't need that attention. You have it in Jesus. So you don't need it. Therefore, how we dress is important because it's honoring to God. It's honoring to the men around us. And ultimately, the core behind it is you don't need the value, the attention, the eyes, or the double looks of a man because you have the eyes of your heavenly father and you have the eyes of your Messiah. And they've never been taken off of you. And he's lovesick and he's fascinated and he gazes and he stares and his eyes are locked on you 24-7. And if you believe that, then you'll never need to draw the attention of another man's eyes because you'll always know you have his eyes. And so there is a wisdom, there's a modesty, and there's a decency that I think that we ought to continue to fight for in a generation of women so that they grow up knowing they have the eyes of their father and that the only other eyes they want to capture are the eyes that are willing to cross the covenant line with them. And then at that point, the beauty of that is everything becomes holy on the other side of that covenant. So I am, I am jealous for a generation of ladies that would so value and treasure their bodies that they also would walk in the modesty of treasuring their bodies, right? Because there's nothing worse than uh, ladies knowing that they've become an object of a, no- of a man's eyes or a, a man's lust or anything like that. And I just so desire to see my daughters cross the covenantal line never having had to wrestle with an eating disorder, never having had to wrestle with major self-hatred. Now, I know that is many people's story, but remember, the gospel's never seen something it can't redeem, and it's never seen something it couldn't forgive, and today's a new day, right? And I'll do my best, but it's still up to my daughters. They still have to make the choices. They still have to make good choices, right? So I do my best to teach, to train, to stand at the door of their heart, and so that they hopefully do make the right choices and never open the door to the lies of the enemy. So does that kind of address what you were saying?
Sorry, that was a long answer. Kind of got on my soapbox there. But reality, that soapbox could have been a lot longer, so I spared you, okay? Because I am passionate about that. Okay, let's jump into a few things, and I think we will make our most ground today in Q&A. But I just want to give you a couple things that I, I think will be helpful, because I find one of the most common questions that people ask is, okay, you're talking a lot about the glories of marriage and how amazing it can be, especially for the singles in the room, is like, well, what now? Like, what do I do now to prepare myself for that day? I want to give you a few things of what it looks like to prepare, to live in preparation, free of anxiety, free of having to make something happen, but also to be living in preparation, to be ready for the day that you would cross that covenantal line with someone. So preparation, what does that look like? I'm going to try and do this for like 10 to 15 minutes and spend the rest of the time in Q&A. Here's what I find. These are stereotypes. So you guys give me grace to stereotype a little bit. And the only reason that stereotypes are sometimes helpful is because they're stereotypes for a reason. And the reason is that they just apply to a lot of people. But it doesn't mean they apply to everyone. So don't take and over-personalize something that doesn't apply to you. But it's still helpful to have the grace to do some stereotypes because the reason they're stereotypes is that they are common. So for men, what does it look like to prepare yourself um, for a healthy relationship, dating or even into marriage. Maybe you are dating. Maybe you know that that's in your future. What does it look like to be ready? What are signs of readiness? Let me give you a few things. And I just want to say that I just think so highly of the men in this school. I really do. Um, the staff men that I know a little bit better, I just am so am grateful for the integrity that these men model. And, uh, and the students I've had the chance to interact with and uh, that I've met, I just, I just honor you guys. And I just honor this as an amazing group of men. I'm not someone uh, that just dogs on men all the time and, you know, makes it sound like every issue is just a man issue. I definitely believe that we as men, and I always say we, it's an inclusive pronoun, need to continue to step up. And I think that there's a leadership vacuum in the world of men not stepping up. But I also think when I speak to rooms like this, this is a room full of men that are stepping up. So I just want to speak that over you, encourage you with that, is that this is a group of awesome guys going after God. And I hope this just encourages you and maybe gives you a few tools in preparation, okay? So here we go. Some of the areas of preparation and some of the things that might be signs of not totally being prepared or ready to steward a woman's heart or to lead a woman spiritually or to lead a family spiritually. I'll give you a couple of things. There's one is I think that for men, it's about becoming men of integrity. And, you know, integrity can be defined by um, what we do when no one is looking. Uh, it's easier to, to kind of live a certain way when others are looking, but real integrity is what we, how we live when no one is looking. And so for a man, part of the preparation for leadership and, and stewarding is pastoring. You know, men, is, we, men need to be gentle with women's hearts is, is integrity when no one is looking. It's how we live and how we make decisions when no one else is around. And that is massive in preparing and moving towards that. Another is, is men moving in integrity, men moving in initiatory love. This is, I find, one of the biggest things for men is overcoming any last bits of passivity that might remain in our hearts and becoming wild initiators. I just think it is a man's privilege to be an initiator. We see that in the bride-bridegroom parallel throughout Scripture. God's not saying by uh, calling us the bride of Christ that we're all women. And he's, what he's saying is that we fall in the roles of a groom and a bride. And the roles are is it is the privilege of the groom to initiate and it is the privilege of the bride to receive and respond. And in the same way, God is the ultimate initiator, which is why you could say that Jesus was the bridegroom because he initiated and he still initiates. Our role as the bride of Christ is to receive his love and respond with love. 
So in the same way, on earth, it is a man's privilege to walk as initiatory leaders. I think we have, for some reason, in the last decades, maybe because of that vacuum, we see more and more women having to step up and lead in categories where men ought to be leading alongside them in an, in an initiatory way. Um, why is it stereotypical, not here, again, don't personalize this, but that you know, you, a, a woman by nature might be more passionate about worship or passionate about prayer, and men might be standing in the back with arms crossed, you know, checking the NBA scores on their phone. Why has that become a little bit stereotypical in our society? Well, there might be some truth to it. Again, not in this room. But part of preparation for manhood and marriage is where men find spiritual initiation in their heart. They find initiatory passion to run after God. I tend to think that men ought to be the wildest worshipers in the room. That men, thank you. Men, that men ought to be the most initiatory in prayer and intercession, leading the way, which will allow women to lead even more because men are initiating in that rightful role of spiritual leadership. So it's becoming an initiator of your spiritual life, spiritual leadership, and of radical love, initiatory. Uh, another thing, destroying passivity. I said that already. Uh, let me hit this real quick. Is honor. Is men walking in a true culture of honor? And what does that look like? What does it look like for a man to walk in honor? One is I'm, I think, and you can write these down, men. Is it men, men walk in honor by learning to honor with our mouths? This is big. I, I, I think that there's a lot of damage done by what's been allowed in the culture of some of, of men, you know, friendships with sarcastic and sexual humor. And, and what we laugh about, we will eventually tolerate. And what we tolerate, we will eventually celebrate. And we see that throughout. So what, be, what starts as a joke, in other words, the enemy knew if he could get us laughing about certain things on TV, that we eventually would normalize them, tolerate them, and eventually we would celebrate them. And we can see that in the last 30 or 40 years. We started by laughing. We eventually went, now nah, it's no big deal. And then we ended by celebrating. In the same way, I think that in culture of men's and, and male conversation, that it can, especially when men are just together alone, it can, it can turn towards sarcastic or sexual humor. Um, it can turn towards talking about ladies in a dishonoring way. It's so important, men, that our lips are honoring. And that s- sex and sexuality is not something to be joked about sarcastically or crudely. It's something to be honored and revered and fought for. It's something where men ought to be able to walk together even once they're married and fighting for each other in in those categories of romance and keeping the flame hot in their marriages rather than something that's joked about and something that has a sarcasm and humor attached to it. So for men, walking in that honor is about learning to honor with our lips and our mouths. It's becoming, let me just say some old school phrases here. I think a man walks in honor when he is polite. I, I just think there's something to being polite. There's something to a man being kind. There's something to women going first in line. I'm a little old-fashioned there, I guess. There's something to making sure all the ladies got to eat before the guys jump in there and get a heaping plateful, and there's nothing even left for the ladies. There's something to that that is a sign of preparation where men walk in honor. There's something to opening doors for women. There's something to like honoring women in our speech, in our actions, um, in looking out for them. In protection, but not protection with ulterior motives. Just purity, pure protection, pure desire to see someone be safe. So uh, it's it's kindness, it's being polite. Um, Men... You know, men walk, let me give you another one is men that walking in honor, this is all in the category of honor, 
is the way that we talk to ladies, and again, don't personalize this if it isn't you, but I think our culture has celebrated it, is, you know, our conversations, our communication can often have, like, strings attached. They can have ulterior motives. Those strange text messages I joked about yesterday that are a little bit swirly. It's like, what did he mean by sending that? And it can just get, it can get you know, at the end of the day, what it is, is this, it's manipulation. And it's manipulation unto a certain outcome or to getting something. And as men of honor, we just don't communicate that way. We don't communicate with ulterior motives, and we don't honor with ulterior motives. And then uh, let me give this, this last one. And this is some uh, common, not, uh, again, some may apply to. Think about this. I, I run into guys and go, go well, I, I don't really have a lot of guy friends. I, I better relate to women. Like, I mostly, most of my friends are ladies. Well, think about this in that. Is that I want to say this. Is God created men to have the, some of their closest friendships with men. And God created women to have their closest relationships with women. In our, in our DNA, in our creation. Now, it doesn't mean we don't have friendships with others. We do. But sometimes I get a little concerned when, a, let's just say, a guy comes up to me and goes, I, you know, I, only, I don't really have friends with guys. I go, okay, well, there's probably something wrong there. There's a reason why you might not have friends with guys. What is it? Let's get to the root of it. Here's the other thing. When you, cro- when you, when you cross the line of covenant with a woman and you can't relate to those friendships any longer the way that you did before, then you're either carrying those friendships into marriage and now they're totally unhealthy or you now have no male friendships. And so my, my, what I want to encourage you with is if a relationship can't be carried into marriage and stay healthy, it's probably not healthy outside of marriage. So if I have all these friendships with, now I do, I work very closely with, you know, with our school leaders here, with Holly and Allie, and I work in leadership teams with women all the time. I have high standards about being alone with other ladies or all those kinds of lines I won't cross. But if I had all these friendships that were like my emotional friendships were deeper with women than men, the moment I'm married, those are all unhealthy. They're all inappropriate. I can't have an emotional relationship with, an, with a woman the way that I would, that I'm supposed to have with my wife any longer. That's an emotional affair now. So I want to encourage you that in your single years, it is so important that if you might feel like, well, I kind of lean the direction towards having, I'm a guy and most of my friendships are girls. Okay, but now is the season to begin to build healthy friendships with guys. And you, it is the season. As ladies, you go, man, I just don't relate to other girls that well. I feel like I've always related to guys. Okay, I get that. You might have some guys that are friends. But now is the season to develop close relationships with other women and to ask the question, what's holding you back from that? Because if you can't carry it into marriage, there's something unhealthy about it before marriage. Does that make sense? So as men, we kind of honor that. Let me keep going for a moment, and then we'll hit some questions. Part of men and walking in that culture of honor is, is really developing David and Jonathan relationships. It's men going deep with men and, and knowing that there's an honor to that, that then you can carry that into covenant relationship. I still have deep friendships with guys, and Holly doesn't need to meet that. This is different. What I do with Blake and Tiger and the depth of friendship that we have I don't need, Holly and I's relationship is different. I can't replace either one of them. They're both valuable, but I could never have those relationships with other women. In that moment, they would be unhealthy. Okay, back to the men. What does it look like? Signs of preparations. I'm almost done here. I'll move to the women. Is purity is a big one. Let me give you, okay, let me summarize it into three categories for men to summarize all of them. Number one, overcoming passivity. Okay, number one is men. 
prepare for marriage. You're like, what do I do now? You know, I'm not married. I don't even know who she is. That's okay. Kick passivity in the face. Don't carry a millimeter of it into your marriage. Spend the years ahead of you. Redeem your single years. Don't be so excited to get married that you miss out on redeeming your single years. Your single years are awesome. They're valuable. They're beautiful. So as men, destroy passivity. Don't carry it in. Uh, sometimes ladies will ask me, how do I know if a guy is ready? Even in this setting, staff, you know, st- even students. Well, I, not because they're interested, but the student will ask me, how do I know if a guy is ready? Here's what I would say to most of the ladies. I'd be like, uh, let's just say you're in revival and reformation. Dating's totally, you're going for it. You know, the dating's possible. So a girl does come up to me and goes, hey, I'm kind of interested in this guy. He's kind of interested in me. And, uh, and I don't, but I don't know if he's really ready. How do I know? I'd say, here's, here's what I want to tell you to do. Go and spy on him during his work duties. And you will know if he is ready to fight for your heart. (laughs) Because, because, here's why, here's why. I tell that young lady, go spy on him, watch his work ethic. Because if he's not willing to work hard without pay, then he will never be willing to work hard for you without pay. Can he generously, generously, does he have hard work ethic? Has he overcome passivity? Is he willing to work hard even if there's no real, he's not working for money, he's working out of a volunteer spirit. It's a sure sign that a man is ready to fight and work for a woman's heart, no matter how that goes. You got another microphone there? Is mine dying? Okay, cool. So, number one. Number two, second thing I would tell her, I'd say, okay, after you spied on work duties and you were like, whoa, the dude just works like a man hoss, right? And you're impressed because, of course, all these guys do. I know that about you, right? Right, guys? Right, guys? Work duties? Uh, so-so? Okay, well, I have a feeling the work duties are going to pick up around here. Um, secondly, here's what I'd say. Again, picture we're in a different setting. You, you know, you're living here and you got your vehicle and you, you, know, you live here. I'd say second thing I want you to do after you see them at work duties, I want you to go and look at the trunk of their car. Because if a man's not willing to clean the hidden areas of his life and he's not willing to carry it, those areas and steward those areas that not everybody sees, then he won't carry that into his personal life and he won't steward the hidden areas of his life. So I'd say find out how his trunk looks. Is it clean? Does he care about the things that not everybody sees? Because if he does, then he cares about the integrity of his life when no one else is looking. Great signs. So number one for us as men is overcoming passivity as it relates to our work ethic, as it relates to the hidden areas of our lives, as it relates to when no one else is looking, that same, we have kicked passivity in the face and we are men of initiatory courage and passion and hard work. Number two men, these are fast. The second one we already hit is men overcoming lust. I will hear men say like, well, I know I'm struggling with it now, but I know when I get married, then I'll no longer struggle with it because I'll, I'll have a wife then. Wrong. And wrong for several reasons. Wrong because it's actually biologically wrong. But two is that your wife was never meant to be the object of your lust. So if carrying lust right now is an issue, projecting that towards your future wife is not what marriage is about. So I encourage men right now, and I've walked with so many of them to go, guy, dude, man, now is the time. You can have victory over this thing. 
And what I encourage men with is that victory is an unending, it's that we're take, we never stop taking ground. That's the victory. Some guys go like, well, I, I literally have like five years of this addiction and I'm so discouraged that I'm overcoming. I go, no, no, victory for you is that in this month, we take another step towards victory. And then victory for you is that next month, we take another step. And we take another step. And we take another step. Instead of going like, well, if tomorrow I struggle again, I guess I'm just always going to struggle. And then we get fatalistic and we give up. No, victory is to never stop taking new ground. And that never ends. That never ends our whole life. We're taking new ground, right? So for men, it's overcoming areas that we've struggled in purity. Why? You've got to create a safe place for your future wife. You've got to create a safe place in your life where you know and she knows that your eyes and your heart are set on her and her alone. I would say that pornography is one of the greatest struggles, even in Christian marriages, of moving people in towards radical unity and camaraderie. And all, think of all the confusion that enters into a marriage when pornography is, is allowed into the marriage. Because now for the woman, it's all the insecurities of like, I guess I'm not enough. My husband's having to go over on the side here and he's looking at pornography. Clearly he doesn't find me beautiful enough. And all this confusion begins to enter in. Guys, single men, now is the time to put the ax to the root of any of these issues. And you've just got to hear it. It's possible. Stop believing what society would say or the lies the enemy would say. Go, no, it's just always going to be this way. No, it doesn't always have to be this way. You can have victory. You can have it. Seven, I'm 17 years married, and I'm not a perfect man. I promise you that. Holly could tell you that. I, we walk through stuff together. I am not perfect. But I have nev- in 17 years, I have never looked at pornography. My eyes are set on my wife. They're for her and her alone. Now, in high school, I struggled with these things, right? And if I'd have bought into the lies, we'd be like, well, that's just what men do, and they're always going to kind of struggle with this. I went, no, no, there's no way I'm carrying this into marriage. There's no way. And I had a couple-year season where I just got vigilant, and I went after it, and I obliterated this thing. And in 17 years, I can joyfully say that my eyes have only seen my wife. And that is a joy, but I don't say that to you look up to me at all. I'm not impressed with myself. I promise you that. I say that to you as men to say, you can do it too. It's possible. It's totally possible. So purity, number two. And the last one, number three, men is dealing with buried anger. Dealing with underlying anger that's there. A woman was never meant to be the object of a man's anger. Let me just say this. Fighting never has to happen in marriage. Now it, now it might Fighting, I mean fighting, not disagreeing. That's totally normal. Disagreeing and communication, we're having to work things out, that's normal. But I just want to say, fighting never needs to be normal. Society's told us it's normal. The scriptures would tell us it's a sin. I want to side with the scriptures, right? So buried anger, and a man especially, dealing with buried anger in his heart is about, is, uh, about preparing ourselves for future marriage. We are prepared when we have dealt with underlying anger that might eventually lash out at a wife, lash out at children, and, uh, and, and, and dealing with that now is about preparing for that day of marriage. Um, Fighting, like even in our marriage, you know, we kind of set from the very beginning when we got married. We just said, you know what, if I ever raise my voice at you, which I'm, I'm human, so I'm not ruling out that I might do it, but we're agreeing together right now, if I do, it's sin and it requires repentance. We just said, we're just laying it out at the very beginning. If I ever slam a door, 
I'm declaring right now, it is sin and it requires repentance. If I ever yell at you, call you something, if I even raise my voice at you, I'm just setting the bar right now. I'm not saying I won't fall into it because I'm not perfect. But if I do, we're declaring right now, it's sin and we both know it. So then therefore, the only right response is repentance. And we just laid that in the foundation of our marriage right when we got married to go, that anger is not a normal way of conflict resolution according to the Bible. It's not. Now, it doesn't mean it might not happen. Even the married people in the room going, oh, crap, you know, like uh, maybe we lost my temper a few times. It's, it's, it's okay if you have in the past, but please don't make it normal. Call it sin and repent of it. Let's, let's recover the biblical standard there. Now, disagreeing, yes. And are some personalities going to be more passionate than others? Yes. And are you going to have some back and forth that gets a little wild at passionate times? Yes. But we know when we've crossed the line into anger. We know when we've crossed the line and it's gone too far. And we've got to recover in our marriages and future marriages. That is sin. And it requires repentance. Right? So men, purity, obliterating passivity, and dealing with buried anger in our hearts. And I'm telling you, you are creating a safe place for an epic covenantal marriage. You guys in? Men? Okay, women, real quick. Shoot, that took longer than I thought. I'm so sorry. The women, yeah, the women, here we go. Three, I'm going to summarize it in three things then. Three generalizations. Ready? I already said some of this, so this will go faster. Is number one is, ladies, is dealing with the issue of self-hatred and body image, which more I address the societal lie, but now I'll speak to you as ladies. How important it is for you to overcome this, because in the same way that you were never meant to be the object of your husband's lust, a man was never created to somehow create enough value for you that you actually start to love yourself. It's impossible. And it's the same root craving behind a man's craving for lust is a woman's craving for value. And the same way that a woman cannot appease a man's desire for lust, a man cannot appease the desire in a woman's heart for self-value. You've got to find it in Jesus. So if your hope is someday I'll cross the line of covenantal marriage and a man will value me in such a way that I'll never deal with this again is, a, uh, is, is not a real hope. You've got to find it in God. He'll never be able to affirm you enough if you can't find it in God. He'll never be able to tell you enough. He'll never be able to have the right words enough. He'll, he'll mess it up time and time again. He won't be able to read your mind. He won't know what you're struggling with. And the very thing you need, he won't know you need. Because men not only can't read minds, we're just not that smart. We are, we're, we're amazing, but we are the inferior gender. And... And, and, and so therefore, that man can never do and fulfill that need for value and need for beauty. You've got to find it in Jesus. So this season for you is about finding your identity as a single woman in God so that a man doesn't have to do that, but instead his affirmation of you is on top of the value that you already have in Jesus. And then it becomes amazing. I know even Holly and I's journey, she would say if she was here that she wrestled with um, some of these same lies that, of course, mo- a lot of women do wrestle with, comparison and all of that. And it, I would say it was seven, eight, nine, ten years into marriage where I would affirm her, like, babe, you look so good today, and like whatever it was, that I remember the time, I couldn't tell you what year it was in, where she looked at me and it was just a normal affirmation. And she said, you know what, I think I actually believe you. And I was like, are you kidding me? We're like eight or nine years in, and you're just believing that I think you're beautiful. And she's like, I I think I'm really actually starting to believe it. I would want a war for a generation of ladies to be so firm in their identity and so firm in their value that they head into marriage and they go, yeah, of course you think I'm beautiful. I am beautiful. (laughs) 
<laughs> you might not say that, but in your mind, you know you are in God so that when your husband speaks it over, he's just affirming what you already know to be true in Jesus, right? And he builds it even higher. He builds that wall in your heart. So number one, overcoming self-hatred, body image, lies, eating disorders, all the things that flow from that lie. Number two is that if a man struggles at times with buried anger, sometimes, and again, these are generalizations, give me the grace of that, is that for a woman, it's overcoming holding on to buried bitterness. And the way that a man might be taken out by anger, sometimes women are taken out by bitterness, and it's holding on to unforgiveness. It's hope, and there's lots of reasons why. Because of what you went through in past relationships, because of injustices, because of the way your dad treated you, because of things that were said to you in your past. And these things root, they root inside of us and we begin to hold on to these things, carry unforgiveness, and again think, well, if I'm in a relationship with a man, finally all of that will get taken care of. He'll minister to me out of his love and I'll, I'll let go of all this stuff. A man can never do that. Jesus has to do it. And so so for a lady, it's, it's gazing in your heart the way, same way a man would go and go, God, is there any anger in there? Because if there is, I need you to deal with it. That a lady would look in her heart and go, am I holding on to any unforgiveness? Is there any bitterness going on in here that I'm still holding on to? Because if you carry that into marriage, just like anger, it becomes cancer to a marriage. These things become cancer. They start small, but they affect the cells of our marriage, and soon they spread through our marriage. As this bitterness spreads that way. So it's dealing with buried bitterness or unforgiveness, and especially towards men. Because you, you're, I'm just telling you, on both sides, men and women, your, it, your future husband will disappoint you. Your future wife will let you down. Now, I'm not prophesying some big moral let down. That never has to happen. But it is impossible to not let each other down. We don't always know what each other need or expect. So to live with the expectation that we're never going to be let down is an unfair expectation. And when bitterness is there, it blows up. When bitterness or anger are under the surface and we get let down, we get disappointed. Boom! It's like throwing gasoline on that fire. So for ladies, dealing with unforgiveness, dealing with bitterness, especially from past men, so that none of that is carried into marriage. And lastly, again, a stereotype and a generalization that I don't believe is true of most women, but this, again, comes from even questions I've been asked in the last number of years on this topic, is that where a man might struggle with passivity, so can a woman, but where a man might, is that a woman might struggle with control. And now, please don't hear, I am not one of those people that's like, women are controlling. I hate that. I never say that, and I don't believe that. When I was getting married and I was 19, then 20, I was so young, all the guys that I was working with in construction, they would be like, oh, get, they'd hear I'd get married, they'd be like, oh, the, the old ball and chain, right? And I'd be like, I, I don't know who you married, but I'm not marrying a ball and chain. Just so you know, like, well, you're not going to be able to do what you used to do and go, I don't want to do what I used to do. I'm kind of more excited to hang out with her than the boys right now, right? And they're like, well, you're not going to be able to just kind of have your nights free again. You're like, I don't want my nights free anymore. I want them shackled to her and to the covenant of marriage, right? And there was all these lies that were trying, at 20 years old, are coming against me on like the lies over women. I don't believe them. So you know that. I don't believe them. They're lies. But in the same way a man might veer towards passivity sometimes towards God's given role of initiation. Why? Because the enemy attacks us where we're most called, always. So as a man is called to initiate, of course, the enemy is going to attack with passivity. M women are life bringers. 
Women are joy bringers and life bringers and life bearers. That is a woman's anointing. They bring life everywhere they go. So the enemy's gonna attack women there where they're most anointed, the bringers of life and the sustainers of life and the bringers of joy. And the attack against that is the attack of control. And that is to quench or to hold or usually out of fear. I have a number of situations here where you know, a couple got together, maybe not in here, but in YWAM in my history, a couple gets together, they're stoked on the nations, they're totally on fire, and they get married, and they're so excited, and then, you know, two years in, guy comes to me in a crisis and goes, bro, I don't know what to do. When we got married, we were willing to go anywhere for Jesus, but as soon as my wife got pregnant, it was like living apart from her family was a non-option, and he goes, I am now faced with moving to suburban America when I've had my eyes on the Himalayas, and I don't know what to do. We were in unity about the Himalayas, but as soon as we had a child, it was like, oh yeah, we're starting a family now. Now we've got to live near my family because they've got to be near the grandparents. Now, if God's saying that, awesome. But if he's not, then plan A is still plan A. And part of a lady's preparation for marriage is the, is the opening of the hands to go, God, I'm willing to be led and I'm willing to go anywhere and I'm not buying into an ounce of a mentality that marrying equals settling down. And God, I'll raise my kids anywhere because it's still the same God. It's still the same lordship. It's still the same surrender. It's still the same provision. It's still the same goodness of God. He's the same whether we're single and he's the same whether we have six kids. So it's dealing with any fears related to where you live, where you might raise a family, where, where, you know, how far away from your family you might be. It's dealing with all that. Now, again, God could speak and say, yes, go live by your family. But it, the issue is, did he say it? And it's dealing with our hearts so that we're free to go anywhere God would lead. Otherwise, you're going to buy into that lie and that mentality that when we get married or have family, we settle down. I think I already talked about that at some point in the school. Is that, it makes no sense to me. You're totally on fire for God and you marry someone else that's on fire for God and you simmer your fire down? No, you just doubled your fire. It's simple math. Uh, Society just forgot about arithmetic. One plus one is two, not a half. I took crazy risks. I was totally full of faith and I'd be willing to go anywhere for God. But now I married someone else who wanted to take crazy risks and go anywhere for God. And now we got half as riskful? No, no, no. We got twice as riskful. We got twice as faith-filled, right? So men and women, but for ladies, it's, it's celebrating that marriage is actually going to lead, lead to greater risks. You might live somewhere even crazier than you thought. You might do things crazier than you thought. God might ask you to live unconventionally financially. God might ask you to, you know, live way away from your family or your husband's family, but you're okay with it because he's good and he's God and he's Lord. And he's Lord whether you're married, single, or have kids, right? So it's, it's just letting God touch that area of the heart so that the hands are open and we'd be willing to obey no matter the season of life we're in. So ladies, dealing with self-hatred body image. Number two, buried bitterness, getting rid of it, encountering his compassion and his love. And number three is letting go, open-handedness and radical faith. God, to go anywhere and do anything. These are sure signs and these are sure ways of preparing our hearts and preparing our lives for that day or for glorious marriage that may be in the future. All right, should we do questions? Is this making sense, guys? Okay, cool. We'll start over here. You got you to bring your visions together. 
Seek God together. Seek his face together. God's not confused. So if we're confused, then we just got to press into God a little bit more. It's really that simple. Oh, yeah. So if um, if someone that like you're in a relationship with or you're looking to be in a relationship with, say you're like you know you're called to something like more unconventional, say it be like missionary work or music yeah. or something like that, and they're called into the marketplace or or you know like medical field or something like yeah. that. What does that look like? Because that's question. something. Yeah. Great question. Th- let me say this: is that it's it's less about the specifics and it's more about the values undergirding the specifics. Yeah. It's too hard to know where you're going to be ten years from now. Right, and, But this is the question you're asking. Let's say you're in that scenario, and let's just say I'm going to make up your scenario. But I'm going to say you feel called literally to like an unreached people group and, uh, and, and church planting among them. And then there's this person that you're interested in or maybe you're already dating even, and she's like, gosh, I just, I just know for me it's, it's the medical world. I'm called to the medical world. And you, you have conversations in that where you're like, well, maybe it could be segue. Do you think it could be that we're a season among unreached people and you're actually starting hospitals? Or, or maybe it's, you know, that, that we're going to do this for a while and then we're going to do that. And in those moments, what you're looking for is are your values the same? And these are the non-negotiables. Is do we believe fundamentally that we make decisions by hearing the voice of God? If you can't agree there, then that seeming contradiction is a big deal. If you can agree there, then this isn't a big deal because there are more curves on the road ahead than we could possibly imagine. If you'd have said we'd be here doing this now when we first got married, we'd been like, how's that going to happen? You know, really? But our value system was the same, is that we don't know where we're going, but we know how we're going. We're going by being led by the voice of God, led through the scriptures, led through seeking his face, led through, you know, getting into unity. So it's the value system undergirding the decision-making more than the distinctions that we think we might be called to in the moment. But I do think it's important to have that. Is compatibility of calling important as part of that question? It is important. But it's more important the values undergirding the calling and how we decide or how we make those decisions than it is what we think our calling might be. Because one, the calling will change you know, how we get there and what it looks like. Um, but two, it's really about can we press into hearing God together? Are we committed to journeying together after the heart of God? Then let me just add one thing to that. I do think that there are times where someone knows so firmly what they are called to that that absolutely needs to be a major factor in who they end up marrying. In other words, they just know that they know that they know. Like Jeremy Curry, when he met Krista and he wanted to marry her, he really, he really, really liked this girl. But for him, moving to the Himalayas was a non-negotiable. And it wasn't, they didn't even start dating until she knew that that's where they were headed. And he knew that clearly. Not everyone knows that clearly. I'm going to say that's like one out of 30, one out of 40 that knew that clearly. But for him, that was on the table. So when they started dating, she knew what she was getting into. She knew that they, they were heading to the Himalayas. I mean, he wanted to buy his tombstone when he moved there. You know, I don't think he, I don't think he could. But. So is that helpful? It's the value system undergirding it. Are you willing to hear God together as you walk out that journey? Yeah. 
uh, whoever, yeah. Um, it's kind of more so on yesterday, uh, but you said you, you said you cried during worship at your wedding. Yeah, I was a mess. I've, I've never seen. Oh, I expect it to be that way. I understand. Um, I've never seen a I've never seen a wedding. Yeah, even if no one else has been in the room, we wanted to worship God as the very foundation of our covenant. So it was our covenant was made on the heels of having exalted His nature and character, and holding that in front of us as this is the only grace that we have to stay married is God's nature and character. And it's been His nature and character that led us here, and it's His nature and character that will lead us from here. So exalted and endured in. I remember the songs we sang, and I just, I was a mess. Because I just kept thinking, like, how, God? How did this happen? This was the biggest home run in human history. And I hit it. Like, I joke about staff here, like, oh, same joke, right? But, you know, it was like a greater works anointing wedding. It was like Jesus said you'd do greater things than him. I did. I reached so far out of my class and so far out of my league and hit this home run, and I, at my wedding, I was in awe. How did this happen? I'm sure God gathered the angels and was like, Gabriel, you've never seen this. You've seen a lot, but you have never seen this. And I still know it, too. I love it. I'm, I'm totally down with this. Is people, I will see it in people's eyes. They see us walking down the road holding hands or eating together at a restaurant, and I will watch the consternation hit their faces where they're like, how did he get hurt? And I'm like, oh, Yeah. <laughs> I always planned on marrying up. That was kind of like a, you know, I was just always knew I was gonna marry up. Someone was gonna have to marry down, but I knew it wouldn't be me. So, so, so that's kind of why I rushed with Holly too before she really knew the sacrifice she was making. But uh, so I, I married way up, and I'm fully aware of it. Marry up, marry up, guys. But then I realized pretty much whenever a man marries, he marries up. Yeah. Because the, the yeah. female species is a remarkable species. <laughs> All right, next question. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the microphone? Whoever has it, yeah. Um, okay, I was just wondering for the ladies in the room if you could just put like some words behind. We all hear, like, kind of in the Christian world, we kind of hear that it's the guy's job to pursue, but like, what is the like girl's responsibility in that? It's so of, like, hard, isn't it? Yeah. Every girl's like, ah. And his, I feel bad. Ladies have it tough there. Because, you know, dudes have the prerogative and, again, like I said, the privilege to be initiating. And for a lady, that can be so tough. You just can feel like you're waiting, you know. And so I, I, it is it is him hard, yeah, right? We, I've got to tell you the stories I answer this. So Jeremy Curry came here and <laughs> it was in the, a fire and fragrance in the tent. And I gave him 15 minutes and he just talks about going long term to the nation. So he's passionate about marriage. Too. And he was, he gets, he's wild. So he was, he got his preaching on and he was like, some of you dudes, I don't know why I said bathroom, but he's like, you, some of you guys just need to go into your bathrooms and just break off passivity, find a wife and move to the nations and like shatter passivity, find a wife, right? He's so passionate. And there was a girl sitting right in the front row. And as soon as he said, break off passivity and find a wife, she was like, yeah, <laughs> but, but nobody else said anything. <laughs> And it was like, you could see all the guys in the room and they were like, oh, remind me to avoid her at all costs. The guys next to her, they scooted away. They were like, 
She got so, she was like, she didn't know that no one else could say anything. She was all by herself. Yeah! I just couldn't wait for her man to break off passivity and find her, you know? It was awesome. It was so funny. It was a, it was a great moment. <laughs> so what is a lady's role in this whole thing? Well, one, I would say, it just the same way as a guy, a lady's role is to prepare her life and her heart for that. But I also think it's wise to build healthy friendships and to build them in community, uh, build them in groups. And, and that's often, it's out of friendship, I think marriage most naturally unfolds, or I should say dating, most naturally unfolds out of friendship. So I think it's totally right and normal and healthy for ladies to be building, actively building friendships in groups actively getting to know other guys that will allow natural friendship to birth that could lead to, gosh, I think this is more than friendship. I also think, like someone said and asked the question yesterday, that maybe they're, you're in a, an almost relationship, and not, hopefully not here because we're all honoring and loving that guideline, but maybe in your future or maybe even back home, where you're like, for crying out loud, this guy's giving me so many signals, but he ought to be initiating, but he's not. Like he's saying things, he wants to hang out, when he's around me, he smiles more than he usually does. And, and it's, it's lingering. And you're like, well, maybe this guy just hasn't broken off all the passivity he needs to. I don't think there's anything wrong in that moment of that lady's going like, hey, I need to know. Like, are you, because if you're not thinking anything, that's great. I don't need to think anything either. But like, where, where are we at? That smile from across the room was a little awkward. <laughs> and I, my, my parents' story is funny because my mom essentially like called my dad to the carpet. He was dealing with passivity. And he, don't ever do this, ladies, but my, or men, my dad would laugh about it. He'd tell you, so I'm not dishonoring him. But he was, he, he was dating two girls. <laughs> kind of. One in Alaska and one in Washington. And my mom found out about it and was like, this is ridiculous. He was trying to be real secretive and it wasn't like, uh, it wasn't being like, it wasn't crossing a bunch of physical lines with both of them, but even to be kind of, he was basically interested in two girls trying to figure out which one the one was the one, and he was in turmoil. And my mom just had enough. And she, I, my mom was so feisty, and she was just like, that's enough, Vernon. Yeah, that's his name, Vernon. She's like, you, you, either, you either choose me right now, or we're done. And I was like, come on, Mom. She just laid it out there. She's all feisty on him. And that was it. And he just needed that moment. And he was like, I love that. I love your feistiness. I'm totally in. And he repented, apologized. He was so sorry. And they got married. So there is place for a girl to be able to speak freely at times as well. But, um, but it, it is so much the privilege of a man to be walking in that initiatory role. But I just encourage healthy friendships, really. More than anything. All right, where's the microphone? Oh, did someone? Okay, cool. I thought you already passed it up. You you pick someone, then not me. Okay, so you talked a little bit about like the relationships that you have with the opposite gender yeah. like, before you enter into marriage. Yeah. And how if they're like emotional and then you get to the altar, those are like immediately unhealthy. Can you talk a little bit about like? Um, breaking off soul ties or breaking off emotional relationships that you've had with guys in the or past. with girls. Yeah. yeah, and even if you're like not in communication with them, yeah, yeah. Like still carry that That's so like great. Emotional so great. I'm a firm believer in that and, and, and I think it's, it's faith. It's the currency of faith it's, and it's believing in the power of prayer. So I think it, I would highly recommend if you have never done it before to grab, grab your outreach leader, grab a couple friends, and pray through and declare the breaking of all of those soul ties. In faith, it's an act of faith. God, I sever, and it's usually repentance. 
I repent for having built that soul tie. I repent for what we did, whether it's physical, whether it's emotional. I repent for giving my heart away. I'm sorry. Repentance breaks the power of that thing. And so repent it, pray it, break that stronghold. And then, you know, sometimes it's practical too. Because it's sort of like, hey, I've had this unhealthy emotional tie and I don't really want to pray through and break it, but I'm still texting him every day. Stop texting him. It's practical. I, you know what I mean? Like, I want to break the soul tie. It's totally unhealthy, but it's, he's still my screensaver on my laptop. Get a new screensaver. So do the practical to actually have an actual clean breakup. Do the spiritual, that prayer moment, to sever the emotional tie. Repent of the sin that led to it and break it off. And I encourage you, you will feel freedom over it. When I was in DTS, uh, I wrote two, I'd had two relationships kind of junior, senior year that were both unhealthy. And I was so convicted over, over what I'd done to those ladies' hearts, those girls' hearts. So I wrote letters to both of them repenting. I just mailed, literally mailed to them, just repenting that I, the way that I had treated them. And then I prayed through with some guys and just dealt with all the sin that, that I had embraced in that and the soul ties had been created. And it was like, I, I was just a new man after that. It was like I was free of that baggage that I had been carrying of both my own guilt, um, but the, that emotional connection that affects your thought life, it affects your emotional life. And man, when you pray through that and get free of that, it's a beautiful day. Uh, I'm not sure where the microphone is. Yep. Um, it kind of goes back to the whole guys pursuing girls and okay. that being their job. Okay, it's a big um, one. <laughs> um, how would you say practically that a guy uh, pursues a girl with honor but doesn't pressurize her? Yeah. Yeah. What does what an honoring pursuit look like? So the difference between honor and pressure is this, is that honor um, honors, honor honors a, a girl, in that situation, honors the the role of patience and the, the, the comfortability with the speed of moving forward in the heart of a, a lady. So pressure is when a guy wants to move faster than a girl's wanting to move. Honor is to honor the speed that she's comfortable moving at. Honor is also honoring a no if the answer is simply no. We had a hilarious relationship teaching a couple years back where a guy asked a question and it was classic because it was like, he started with like, I have a friend and everyone knew it was him. I know this guy, and we all, everyone was like, bro, you can be more honest than that. It was so funny. He's like, all right, all right, it's me. <laughs> He's like, I have a friend, and he totally is after this girl, and because and, I was talking about initiate, initiative, right, kicking past it in the face. He goes, I did that. Oh, what do you do when you go after her heart and she says no? He goes, but do you give up, or do you, do you, when, when should a man persevere for a woman's heart? You know, and all the girls in the room were kind of groaning a little bit. And I'm like, well, bro, you gotta gotta honor the no, you know. Just like if she says no, like you just gotta honor that, you know. And he's like, you can tell he's not satisfied with my answer. We go two or three more questions, hands up again. He's like, but bro, like, isn't there a place for a, a just a heroic man to not give up fighting for a woman's heart? And the girls like double grown. They're like, please stop, right? And I'm like, well, dude, I mean, if it's a no, like you really just gotta honor that no. Third time, raises his hand. Third time, he's not taking my answer, right? So everyone's roaring, we're laughing, right? He finally gives up, it's so funny. He finally is done, we go on. Well, about six months later, 
I get an email, and he goes, Andy, just so you know, I got the girl. And it's Ali GTS. And, and he brought her out here, and I got to meet her. And he did, he didn't give up. He pursued, and he got the girl. But I, I'm not saying every guy should do that, right? But man, he knew, he was persistent, and he won. So I think, how does a man honor, though, a girl in that process, and what's the difference between pressure and honor? I really think it has to do with, um, with a, a girl feeling honored and safe, and not pressured and rushed. And I think pre pressure and crossing that line is when, when a girl feels like she's being pushed to move faster than she's comfortable moving. And as men, it's really, it's really important that we honor that process. Uh, the scriptures say, do not arouse and awaken love until it's so desired. Song of Solomon, right? Yes. Which has spiritual and physical truths attached to it. So I think it's important that a man honors the awakening of love in a woman's heart instead of trying to make that love awaken and move faster than is healthy or normal. So it's, a, man, a man needs patience in that honoring pursuit. And, and a woman needs to feel that she's not pressured and needs to be able to open her heart at her own speed. And then at times a lady will recognize like there's actually some wounding related to my slowness or my patience. Well, she needs to deal with that wounding, right? So that's not the reason that you're moving slow. It's because you're really just wanting to build friendship. But if there is past wounding, it's important that that's honored by a man. And, and therefore, she's not pushed beyond faster than she can overcome those past things. So I think, does that help answer that a bit? Okay, cool. All right. Um, I'm not, where is it? Where are you? Stand up? Okay, yeah, yeah. Stand up so I can see you. Sorry. Um, you gave that hypothetical of uh, how a girl would know if a guy's ready. How would a guy know if a girl's ready? Yeah. How? how <laughs> yeah. You're so hard on the guys. Be hard on the girls now. <laughs> I think, in essence, what I wanted to illustrate with that was the three points of passivity, purity, and dealing with buried anger would be observable. In observing a man in a place like work duties or a place like his, you know, the trunk of his car. So I think in the same way that a man is looking for a woman and signs that she is ready by being able to observe some of those same things that I think are signs of preparation. So, it, you know, for me, and I'll give you practical, is I was so blown away by um, Holly's inability or lack of desire to complain. And that was a big one to me. This was, uh, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, Mike Bickle, again, you're going to hear his name so much from me, right? Is uh, I, was, I was listening to a teaching the other day, actually probably a year ago. And he was telling, he's like, hey, I was in the foyer. He's telling a story. And he was like, I was in the foyer of church after done speaking. And he goes, I had a married couple come up to me. They were newlyweds. And they said, Mike, Mike, let us have you for five minutes. He's like, okay. They go, we just got married. What's the number one thing you would tell us? for our marriage that it would be sustained and you know in the fullness of what it could be. And, he get, and Mike's so smart. He goes, well, what do you think I'm going to say? And it's Mike Bickle. So they're like, well, maybe that we should pray together, <laughs> right, because he's the prayer guy. He's like, ah, he goes, that's good. He goes, that's good, but that's not it. And they're like, um, holiness. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I like holiness. That's not it either. And they keep guessing. He goes, none, none of those are ready. He goes, those are all awesome and they're important. He goes, but there's, that's not the one key I would give you for, fu for future marriage. He goes, this is it. He goes, the number one key to he and Diane's marriage, which is amazing, he says, is that we made a commitment when we got married that we would never tolerate complaining in our marriage. And you're like, what? 
And then he got so derailed by it, he spent the, he started a forced part series that night on the power of speech and gratitude and complaining in marriage. And he did a four-part series on complaining and versus gratitude in marriage. So for me, one of the things that I looked at in Holly, which, you know, obviously she was far beyond me, most categories of maturity, but a sign of readiness is like this, she just, she doesn't have entitlements. She, she doesn't complain. She's not discontent with life. And I was blown away by that. And I observed it on outreach, you know, and outreach is dangerous because you can get outreach goggles. And it's like where, you know, you're just like, there's only four, you know, there's only four women that speak your language for three months. And you're just like, they're the one, all four of them. They're the one, all four of them. It's dangerous. There's another reason that that guideline can help protect you. So, but this wasn't outreach goggles. This was like, Holly is sick and throwing up and still not complaining. It's 120 degrees out and she's not even commenting on how hot it is. Of course it's hot. Oh my. Like, it was just like she, she wasn't focused on what she didn't have. She wasn't focused on what was going wrong. She had this amazing ability to focus on what was right and what was a blessing. But I think you're looking to observe those same things. I wrote down here is that freedom from bitterness, um, freedom from uh, totally surrender to Jesus, freedom from controlling through emotions. I think sometimes uh, over-flirtation is actually a, a little bit of control. It's a little bit of manipulation to try and coerce or to try and bring someone closer to meet a felt need. And so being not overly flirtatious is a great sign of someone being ready, right? Because sometimes that's meeting an insecurity or a need for value or a need for love. Um, and preoccupation with body image, which is at its root is self-hatred, you know, and those kinds of things. Last one I'd say, looking at in the heart of a lady, is for guys, is, is seeing that a lady is free of jealousy and comparison towards other women. It's such a beautiful sign of preparation. Now, all these things are sanctification. All these things are 30, 40, 50 years old, and we're still getting more and more breakthrough. We're just wanting to see that these strongholds don't rule in each other's lives, right? There's a difference between it having its foot on our neck and our, us having our foot on its neck. It's still there. It might still bark, but it doesn't have control of us any longer, right? So jealousy might, we might struggle here and there, but it doesn't control us anymore. So those are the things I would say that are observable. All right, next question. Uh-oh. Are you going to make me cry this time? I'm just kidding, man. I'll do my best. <laughs> okay. I loved your question yesterday. I have a four-year-old niece who does not have a father. And so I kind of take that role. I love her with all my heart. And hopefully I don't have to worry about her dating for another 30 years. Yes. And uh, I know your kids aren't quite old enough to date, but how are you processing That's so good. Uh, a man going up to your daughter yeah. and saying, hey, yep. I want to get shot at this. Great question. Uh, mostly I'm investing in weapons. So... Afraid to use them, so yeah, m mostly weapons, and yeah, and I mean, you know, guns, but I'm not afraid of hand grenades, uh, uh, you know, whatever, whatever it takes. No, um, so the, the way that I've prepared my kids is this is one, is I, I don't, I'm not comfortable, and I don't like the way that sex has become so much uh, so taboo in the church. 
So we've, either, we've grown up in one extreme where the value of sex has been diminished by, by being so over, um, talked about, stimulated movies, pornography, crass humor. That's the one extreme. The other extreme is the church that just refused to talk about it all. And it became this religious thing. And, and so we just decided early on that, that we were going to have healthy conversations with our kids in these areas. So I, first time, this is hilarious, you'll love this. My son was, Asher, he was probably seven. And he came up to me, we were in Alaska visiting, it was perfect. And he's like, Dad, he's smart. He goes, how come a chicken can always lay an egg, but that that egg only has a chick in it if there's a rooster? And I was like, oh boy. <laughs> so he, he all of a sudden it occurs to him that hens always lay eggs. But that, that that hen, that egg has no chick in it unless there's a rooster in the chicken pen. Which is true. I don't know if you all knew that. <laughs> it's a male and a female. But they lay eggs without a male, but there's only a chance for a chick in the egg if there's a male. Yeah, yeah well, we'll talk later. We'll talk later. <laughs> I just realized a whole bunch of you had revelation right there. At one time. <laughs> The result of growing up in an urban society. <laughs> Starbucks will never teach you that, guys. Sorry, you're gonna have to get out. You have to get outside every once in a while. So I'm like, all right. So he's seven years old, and I did what every father should do. I handed him a shotgun, and we went for a walk. I had a shotgun. He had a shotgun. He's old enough. He's seven, and uh, and, and we went after squirrels together. But I, I, it was the first time I broke the conversation to him at a seven-year-old level. And then every couple years, we've had conversation. And, and we have, I, I, don't, I don't want the first time he hears about sex to be from his friends in a wrong way. And I don't want the first time he hears about pornography to be because someone's putting it in front of him. And I don't want the first time for him to have all these things to be because he saw it in a movie he should have never seen. I can't control what he does when he's not around me. I can't, I can't be that. But I can, I can preempt it all by having the conversations in a godly way first. So my first goal has been that we would educate our children in a godly way, in an age-appropriate way. And we have not hesitated to have those conversations. So now he's 13, and he is fully aware, because we had a big old rite of passage for him this last year. When he was 13, I took him all over the world. I took him elk hunting with me. I took him to Europe and South America. And, uh, and, and then I took him on a man trip with all of his uncles camping on the backside of Mauna Kea. And uh, we brought him into manhood. Philip Ward, Amy's husband, made him a knife. And, uh, and we, we had letters from all his uncles and all his grandpas, and they wrote to him saying, this is what it means to be a man. And we read them out loud to him, and we brought him into his manhood. But as a part of that was that he would understand, and here's what I've gone after him, is I want him to see sex as something sacred and beautiful, and then therefore worth protecting. I want him to understand it. I want to know what, what it means. And I want him to understand that, there are, that pornography is a real addiction out there, and if he ever struggles with it, the first thing he should do is run to me, right? Last night he asked me a question. He goes, Dad, is there something out there for high schoolers and junior hires that get addicted to pornography? Asking that question out of the blue. We're sitting in the kitchen eating. And I go, I, I go well, yeah, there, you know, there's different things out there for that. And I go, why? He goes, well, I just wondered if, if any of my friends get struggle or if they're addicted to this, is there any way we can help them? And he goes, if there wasn't, he goes, I wanted to start something to help kids that are thinking that are struggling in that area, and I was like, wow, thank you, God. When he first asked, I was like, oh, no, are you, are you okay? <laughs> you know? I mean, no. 
So we tried to have open dialogue about all of that, and, and, but in a way that is honoring and sacred. I wanted to see it as sacred. We had hilarious conversations too. You know, he had, he had just, this was like last year, he was like, we were, we were on our way camping again and hunting. And he, he just, I don't know what, at, he started asking. Someone was talking about stopping having kids. And he goes, Dad, so like, um, so he goes, let me get this straight. He goes, so you, you and, you know, like, you decided you stopped having kids. He goes, that mean like you and mom, like, no more? And I, and I was like, I go, oh, oh, no. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and, I, and, I, and I realized, because we kind of unfolded the conversation, he was, I realized, he was like, so you guys have had sex, like, what, four times? You got four kids? And I'm like, oh, no. no. But... And then I'm able to walk with him and go, just, let me explain this to you. I go, God created sex in a way that would actually be full of pleasure. And I go, but he didn't have to make it that way. And in fact, he knew that in creating it that way would also lead to some of the greatest pain that humanity would ever experience would be because he made sex full of pleasure. And that it would become the root of some of the majority of pain that humans would experience. I said, that's how much God cared about it being pleasurable, shared between a man and a woman in covenant marriage, that he's willing to risk the pain so that it would still be shared in pleasure in covenant marriage. And I just said, I want you to know that's how sacred it is, son, and that's how much it's worth protecting, right? But he opens up these conversations. I'm just looking for windows in my son's heart, my daughter's hearts, to be able to lay value systems in their hearts so they understand how sacred these things really are, and then they would fight for it and protect it, Right? I had a conversation, last part answer your question with the three older ones. Last year on the trampoline, you look for moments. This is a parenting tip for you in your future. Look for moments where you have windows into your heart's kids and they have ears to hear. We were all bouncing around the trampoline and then, and we're hanging out. We're all sitting there afterwards playing. And I go, and I just had, I felt like the Lord said, this is a window. So I'm like, okay, I go, kids, I want to have a conversation with you. I go, you're never going to forget this moment. We're going to call it the trampoline conversation. And they still refer to it as the trampoline talk. They still do. It's like, because it was a moment. And it was a moment where I said, guys, uh, kids, would you make a commitment to me that you're not going to date till you're 18 years old? And I go, here's why. Because anything before that's a total waste of time. I, I go, are, are you going to, I go, do you, are you, you going to get married while you're still in high school? And they're like, no. I go, it's illegal, actually. <laughs> you have to have your parents' signature to even do that, right? And, and I go, well, then why would you date before that if you know you're not going to get married till after that? Would you commit to me to learn to build healthy friendships in your high school years so that when you graduate high school, you know how to have healthy friendships so when the right friendship comes along, you're ready for it and it's healthy? I go, would you commit to me that you're, till you're 18? I knew I need to get them when they were young, right? Why they still don't have really a lot of hormones. <laughs> and, uh, and they're like, totally, Dad. And my girls are like, yeah, like, ooh, dating, gross, you know? And Asher's a little bit more like on the verge, you know, he's 13. So they still, like, someone will bring up dating and they'll say it now. They go, no, we committed to our dad that we won't date till we're 18. And they just know, like, dad, they made a commitment to dad. Now I'll have to help walk them through with it, but that's why we keep referring back to the trampoline talk, right? It was a moment, a window into their heart. And I'm just sowing a value into their heart that dating before that, for the most part, is a waste of time. There's no benefit to dating over just having good friendships in their high school years. So that's kind of how I've approached it with my kids. Does that help answer? Yeah. Did I pass? Barely? Uh, huh? <laughs> what did you say? Oh, good. Thanks. C is chill. C is chill. Did I get a B with you? No, no. Solid B+. Plus. Okay. Last question because it's 12 o'clock and I don't want to keep you too far past lunch. So I don't know where the microphone is. It's right here. I got it. Right okay. Here. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so for a man, if he is afraid to not have love returned to him in a relationship, what does that A look like? 
for him fixing that with God so that he knows that he always has God returning his love? And what does that look for when you're in a relationship with a man who's afraid of that? So, um, the, so you're in a dating relationship with a guy and his fear is, is that he's going to love you or love the, his, you know, whoever's dating or married to and they're not going to love him back? Well, if you're really, if you're in a dating relationship, you're afraid of that, then you're dating the wrong person. Right? You know what I mean? Because there's that fear should be perfect love casts out fear. So in other words, we, our love for each other should break the fear of not being loved. Right? Now, love is different than having needs met or expectations fulfilled. You're giving up the right to have your expectations fulfilled the way that you think they should be. But in a healthy friendship and dating relationship, the fear of not being loved is destroyed by the extravagant love that the other person is giving. So it's the sign of a healthy relationship is that that fear is gone. Um, so that we're entering into marriage, we're not really afraid of that. Though we're, we're, we know where our expectations aren't always going to get met perfectly. We're not afraid of not being loved. Because we would hopefully never marry someone that we're afraid of not being loved by. Did, did I answer the question right? Okay. Okay. Cool. All right, guys. You're awesome. I believe in all of your future marriages and current marriages. Let's go after God on this. Can we make a commitment to reset culture in a generation? Can we reset norm in a generation and go after these biblical truths and precedents to dating, friendship, and marriage? In a generation on the ugliness of what's so common out there? Can we do it different? Can we just make a commitment to that together? How many are in for that today? To shift culture and to do it differently. All right, you're awesome, guys. Enjoy your lunch and... Uh, have a great night. We'll see you at the Thursday night meeting.